So this morning we come into Psalm chapter 3. I invite you to turn there uh, in your Bible, Psalm chapter 3. This psalm is the first one we have encountered. It will not be the last by a long shot that begins with a introductory phrase. There has long been discussion of whether these are inspired. They are certainly been in our manuscripts. They are there not only in the Masoretic text, but also in the Greek. So they've been there a very long time. Uh, for the Greek translation of the Septuagint, which was pre-Christ. And so we come to this, and we um, need to identify these. We'll be reading it as part of the psalm. And uh, it gives us an attribution for the psalm. Uh, There is about 110 to 20 of these that are uh, attributed in this manner. And this one, of course, is called a Psalm of David, which a majority of them are. Uh, and also gives us, on this occasion, what it was in reference to. And so these have, for a very long time, been associated and very accurately um, in our understanding of them. And so as we encounter these in future Psalms, we will uh, be reading them as part of the text and uh encourage you to consider the author and the purpose uh, and perhaps some other instructions that we'll encounter. Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. This morning we enter into the Psalms, and again, this is our first one of this nature. The first two Psalms are more of the wisdom, that is, they are instructional to you. They are not really prayers to God. This is the first Psalm here in the book of Psalms that is directed to the Lord. It is a cry to him. Uh, there will be a large number of these in the coming uh, 10 or 15 or so. We'll have a couple of interruptions around, I think, 11, 10, 11, 12, somewhere there. Uh, we have a couple that are going back into wisdom. So for a while now, we're going to have several weeks in a row of these psalms directed to God. When we consider our hymnody, when we consider the uh, scripture that talks about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, hopefully we have some idea of their distinction between those, that there are songs that are wisdom, that is, they are instructional. They help to teach us various things. and our, We try to use those in our Word Life clubs to teach them, say, the books of the Bible and things like that. 
They are uh, instructional in nature. They are there to help us remember and to recall or to implant ideas or concepts in our mind. And we have those kinds of songs that we should sing. We also have songs of exhortation. And these we really are not singing to God, but to one another. Uh, they are challenge songs. And they uh, encourage us to walk the Christian life. They may be a testimony song where they say, well, here's my testimony. I invite you to share in that testimony. And so they have a very different nature to them. And then, of course, we have these psalms that are directed to God. And there's not one that is superior to another one. They all have their place in our worship and in our, in our uh, praise to God. And so we use them. And here we come to the third one, which is definitely a prayer to God. And as you'll notice, this is, this is really um, going to be something that, that if you just page a few of Psalm in the future, they're all going to, many of them are going to start with, O Lord, O Lord, O Lord. It's going to be very uh, easy to identify these early on. David doesn't uh, need a wide variety to do that. There is some variety here. Uh, but he is addressing his Lord. Uh, these songs are directed to God. Uh, they are both praise, and again, songs sung to God take on different categories as well. So we have some that are focused on praise, um, but I have to share with you that I believe almost every psalm directed to God at some point has elements of praise in it, and this is no exception. Um, and then there are also psalms that are requests that are invitations for God to take action in our midst, in our person, in our circumstances. And they are invitations really for God to listen. Please hear my case. Please consider my cause. Please consider the circumstances. This is one such psalm that focuses in upon the circumstances and then how God responded. And in fact, we're going to have an interruption in this psalm that indicates to us that it may have been written uh, during and then after the very event uh, that is listed here at the beginning. And that is the uh, event of Absalom's rebellion against his father, an attempt to uh, steal the kingdom from him. And so we come into this psalm, recognizing that the direction of this is to our Lord, he is going to, as he will very frequently in this type of psalm, relate to God the circumstances in which he is asking. And this may seem, um, in fact, some people historically have even taught against such a thing. Do you think God doesn't know the circumstances that you live in? Um, but this is pleasing to God. This is God's expectation that you will cast your cares on him. And to do that, we articulate those to God verbally, whether in song, in prayer, in speech. Uh, we cry out to the Lord and we give him verbally a description of what we are encountering in the world. What is it that is moving me to now implore at the throne of God for his mercy, his grace, his power, whatever? 
And when we recount those to God, it is that process of casting them before him that we are not trying to inform God as though somehow God is ignorant of what's going on, but rather we are giving to him our heart's reaction to what the circumstances around us are. They're generally, these words are generally filled with our inadequacy to meet the task. That these are drowning me. These are suffocating me. These are making me unwell. These are uh, 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 shaking me. Uh, and in this case, um, for David, he's on the run. They are have him running. They have he is under a circumstance of being of his life being sought. Now this isn't new to David, and many of the Psalms are going to uh, be of this nature. Uh, he's not always chased by his son. Remember that many of the Psalms were written while he was being hunted by his king, King Saul. And as he was hiding in crevices and cracks and things like that and, and in the wilderness places and sometimes even having to go over to the enemy and feign uh, madness to secure his life. And so these Psalms are not written intellectually, that is, they are not like the last two. The last two psalms were an instructional psalm. They were, they were wisdom. They were teaching you something about the nature of God and the nature of the world around you and how to uh, engage the world and to engage God. And so they were wisdom. And so they were, they were very intellectual. They, they challenge your heart, certainly, but they're focuses on the fear of the Lord and the increase in knowledge and wisdom. These kinds of psalms that we're coming into this example are, uh, that's not their focus. They are very emotive uh, because there is, there is a, a, a strong event that is impacting uh, the psalmist, in this case David, very strongly. And so we don't anticipate um, the wisdom that is there, but because we also understand that these are inspired scriptures, we recognize that this is also divine truth. But the idea that somehow we can divorce and should always divorce our affections from truth um, these psalms speak to something very different, don't they? That in fact, divine truth should be so secure in our life that when we encounter things like sorrow, things like fear, things that of tragic things around us or immense opposition to us, that we now uh, don't just... It's not that we are, shouldn't have any feelings with regard to that, but rather we take divine truth we apply them to them, and we let truth direct our affections. It is not that I have to cast off those affections, um, that somehow having those uh, sensations, those and, and sometimes the random thoughts that come with them, and the fear and things like that that can overwhelm the heart and the soul and the mind, uh, that they don't happen. They do happen. 
And what the Psalms enable us to do is to now apply truth to those very intense feelings, that we bring them under subjection to truth. But that doesn't mean the feelings should go away. We are not, the Bible doesn't call us to a stoicism, that we just go through life and just, well, this is just the will of God, and so I just accept it as the will of God. No, there's going to be times you should be sorrowing and weeping, not only for your own loss, but because of the nature of the world around you and the sin. There are times you should be angry and pour that out before the Lord, that you can be angry and sin not, that you should. You should be infuriated by the actions of men against, as we saw last week, against his creation, against his creatures, and against his people. That should enrage us. But that rage should not be out of control. It should be subject to truth. And so the psalm, these psalms, this kind of psalm, and we're going to encounter many of them, are so precious in that respect. They teach us a different kind of wisdom, an applied wisdom that really um, says, here's how we engage with God in these very emotive periods in our life and how we bring truth to bear in those times to keep us from despair, to keep us from sorrow that knows no end, to keep us from those extremes where we go into acts of violence, whether against ourselves or others. That we're not going to go and find solace in, in a drug, and alcohol, or something like that, but rather I'm going to find it in the Lord. This is where I'm going to resolve these issues of life. And so these psalms are very beneficial for us. And as we go through these, we're going to see a large number in this category of David and others sharing what they are suffering, what they are enduring, and how they are bringing that to the Lord. What does it mean to cast our cares upon Him? And so it begins by declaring to the Lord the circumstances that bring us into his presence. And so David does that very succinctly. He says, they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who save me. There's no help in God. And this is going to be reiterated in verse 6 in a response. He says, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. And so we find that what David is encountering is, uh, and you can almost, if you, if you know the circumstances in which it was written, we're going to talk about that here shortly uh, in, in 2 Samuel. Um, Absalom, his son, has, has raised a rebellion. He has done it very thoughtfully and very um, deliberately. It was not an impromptu thing. He has been sitting at the gate trying to divert people's loyalty away from David and the royal court to himself. Um, he has then uh, gotten together with some of the less content of Israel's, of David's people, um, and even drawing to him not only political aid, but also even religious aid and things like that of the wise men, and, and just trying to put together, if you will, his, his cabinet. If, and without their help, really, it wouldn't have gone anywhere, uh, but he had a lot of help. 
and David realizes that. And as David leaves Jerusalem, as he's really running for his life, uh, he was caught off guard. Uh, he shouldn't have been, but he was. And he's leaving for his life. And he's leaving behind uh, some of his household. But as he's leaving, he is encountering people who are not strong enough really to do any injury to David, uh, at least not in terms of physical violence, but we have at least one man who's going to curse him along his way. And remember that his men were like, should we just cut this man down? Let me just kill this guy. And David says, no, no, maybe God has sent him and that's what I'm supposed to receive is a curse. And as he travel, travels and he hears and he, and he finds out who it is that have lined themselves with Absalom and how many of the people have aligned themselves with Absalom? How many of the military have aligned themselves with Absalom? You can imagine and you can understand the context of David walking out of Jerusalem and going out into the wilderness. Yes, he has a fairly large group. In fact, we're going to find out once he crosses the Jordan that he has thousands at his disposal. How do I know that? Because he had to make captains of thousands and captains of hundreds when he divided his army into three sections to engage Absalom's army. And so we find that as he went out with this fairly large entourage, and then I'm sure it grew as he went until he crossed the Jordan River, that he began to hear this news of this person and this person and this person who has aligned themselves with his enemy. And we say, and you can just imagine how many more, how many of Israel have taken up their side with my enemy? And he rehearses this before the Lord. Look how many there are. They're just increasing that are troubling me. They're rising up against me. And of course, we know the cursing that, that uh, is identified with a single individual. But here uh, it says, many are they who save me. There is no help for him in God that there is not only a geopolitical but also religious element that is opposing him. And he rehearses this before God. This is the condition that I'm encountering. Lord, I'm overwhelmed by this. This is distressing my spirit. Yes, I'm running for my life, but it's that actions of disloyalty that, that are most distressing to David. These people aren't just hunting his life. They are saying that he is cast out from God himself and that it is just time to get him out. Not just to oust him from ruling, but to take his very life. And so David is on the run again. Again, this is not something that is unusual to him. It has been many, many years since he had had to do it but it was something he was really good at for a while. To such a degree that one of the advice that is given to Absalom is, listen, your dad knows how to hide. Um, if you go try to chase him while he's out in the wilderness, you're just going to wear yourself out chasing this guy. He knows all the best hiding places all over Israel because a few decades ago, that's what he did to avoid Saul. And Saul had a whole army. David had like 400 men. Four or six hundred, something like that. He had just the, and, and no one could find the guy. And when you did find him, you couldn't pin him down. He would escape. 
No, you're better to wait till he gets into some city and then we'll surround the city and he'll be caught. Now that was advice from a man who knew David, but also a man who was a spy on David's behalf. Who was countering another individual's wisdom, Ahithophel, and who had instructed Absalom, you know, you're going to have to claim the throne and you're going to do that in an immoral way, first of all, by violating some of David's uh, wives. Um, and you're going to also do that, uh, which again was part of the curse on David when he had committed murder himself. And so we find that all of this is panning out. And Hithophel says, let's go get him right now. He's weak. Uh, he, is, he is discouraged. Let's get him now before he gets very far and before he can gather any strength, before he can organize himself. And of course, Absalom and his people who are with him were weighing this out and decided to go with the advice of David's plant in the court of Absalom and allowing David to escape. Now that's going to be played out in this psalm a little bit. Yes, there are many, many, many who are aligning themselves with the new kingdom, with Absalom, with this rebellion. Anyone who had anything against David for any reason went over to Absalom. Anyone who was kind of a fence-sitter, Absalom had convinced by sitting in the gate and pretending to care about their needs and their interests. And so, this is his condition. He cries this out before the Lord. And it is appropriate that we take that time to communicate to God what our concerns are. It's okay. I say, oh, he already knows. I don't have to rehearse them. I don't think that's true. For David finds it over and over again the necessity of just sharing the burden of his heart. This is the misery I'm encountering today. I want to share it with you, Lord. I want to speak it into your ear that you might hear me say it, that I might communicate it, and that it might uh, be now aired in your presence. But I don't just air my concerns to God. And if that is all we are doing, we are uh, doing it poorly. If that's all we find ourselves doing is airing uh, our fears, airing our miseries, airing our discontent, airing these these uh, sorrows, whatever they are before God, uh, without any further development in our prayer time, without praise, without thanksgiving, then it will not be a beneficial thing for you. In fact, what it will frequently end in is that you'll end up at the end of that prayer airing, 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 and then saying, why aren't you doing anything about it? And you end up being very antagonistic toward the very God that you're supposed to be coming to for help. <laughs> and so there has to be something more than just communicating to God what's going on. But it's okay to communicate to God what's going on. David does that here. Here's the circumstance, Lord. This is what I'm up against. And now we transition. And the, we are also introduced in this psalm to the term selah, uh, many of you have probably learned that term as the word peace. Um, and 
if you go into the, the Greek, had a different understanding that in the Septuagint, they used the word pause. So if you read the Septuagint Psalms and you come to this word in English, they'll say the word pause. Um, we have a concept that this might mean peace uh, from another tradition, really, uh, of the Masoretic Jews uh, that uh, were influenced heavily, I think, by uh, Islam. And we come into this, and this term is really a, a term that we would use uh, of a rest. Let's just rest. Let's pause and rest here. And so uh, whether this was a term used to help you know how to sing it, that has certainly been mentioned by more than a few, uh, whether it was a term that is basically telling us to uh, take a moment to think, to consider, or whether it is simply a time of silence, to meditate on one thing before moving on to another. But there's a break in a pattern here, and we're going to talk about that when we get to it here. And so we have this pause, this rest, uh, this uh, opportunity to consider this is how bad it is. Now, what am I going to, what, what, what do I need to remember? So here's my problems. It's certainly one of rehearsals before God. But now we need to pause, and I want to use that word for that very reason. Pause. Wait a minute. Think about this. You have all these against you. Now, think for a moment. Take a breath. And consider who the Lord is. And so we transition now very quickly into a reflection by David on who the Lord is. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. Now some will say, well, this is uh, David writing at the, at the deliverance side of the problem. And certainly there may be some truth to that, that it was developed and, and that aspects were added to this song over the course of the events that transpired in that period of time from Absalom's uh, initial rebellion till his destruction hanging from the tree. Uh, but um, we also don't want to forget that David has a history with God. He's been in these circumstances before. And he says, you are a shield for me. You are the one who has always defended. You have been my protector. You were my protector when I went out against the Philistines, even that giant Philistine. You are my protector. You are my shield. Throughout all that time of Saul hunting him down, through all those enemies that he has encountered, the Lord was his shield. He says, you're the shield and, and, and all my glory, uh, you are the, my glory. You are the one who lifts up my head. I am where I am. I, I became king by your strength, by your power and to your glory. 
Um, I, I have praised your name because I have been exalted by your hand. My head has been lifted up in that whole idea of exaltation. Listen, if I became king by your power, by your mercy, by your grace, um, by your will, if I became king, then similarly, I will receive from your hand if it's time for me not to be king. But you're my shield. You're my protector. I'm going to glory. And so when we come to God, we are certainly there to rehearse. Here are the things that are troubling my heart, troubling my mind. Uh, and we pour those out to God. But if we think a little bit and remember that this is, this, God has proven himself. He's proven himself time and again. And I'm convinced that as we consider what he has already done for us, our history with God. What is your history with God? He's already delivered you from the very worst. Your own sin and the death that you have earned. He's already delivered you from that. He is your shield. You have the promises of God secured through Jesus Christ, through a death, burial, resurrection, ascension. You have the Spirit residing in you. Oh, that we would remember these things when we lay out before God the the our heart's aches. Now, do I have to remind God of these things? <laughs> Not in terms of bringing them to his memory. We are rehearsing these things before God to reveal a heart that says, listen, I am cast down, but I am not destroyed. I am not wavering in my faith in you. I just want your attention to the circumstances and their severity that I am surrounded by. I have not forgotten that you are the Lord, that you have done all this for me. And this is such an important step in these kinds of praying that I find too many Christians don't do. And because they don't do that, they end up cursing God, blaming God, and accusing Him. Because they don't take the time to rehearse in their praying to God, Lord, You have been so good. You have made me Your child. You have delivered me in the past. You have provided for me all these days, I will trust in you. I want to bring you glory. I'm here as your child. I'm here as your servant. And as your servant, you can do with me as you please. And that is a completely different attitude than the person coming to God and saying, how could you let this happen to me? Which is far too often our attitude. Take some rest. When you have rehearsed before God the circumstances that are troubling you, take a rest and think. Who am I talking to? I'm talking to Almighty God, who is for me, not against me. Unless I have sin in my heart. And we're going to deal with some confessional psalms along the way. This isn't one on this occasion, but we're going to deal with confessional psalms. There's validity there, but in this case, there wasn't a confessional. It was really stating that I have cried to the Lord my voice. He's heard me from his holy hill. This is the experience that I've had, uh, that whenever I have come into difficult times, I laid out before God, and God, you are my shield. 
You are my protector. You always listened. You are the one that raised me up to be king of Israel. You are the one, and I want to give you the glory for that, for all that you've done. I am your servant. Do with me as you please. And the attitude now shifts, and this is so critical in our dealing with with times that make us hurt. And I'm I'm trying to use very broad terms because it's such a broad thing. It's not just people being disloyal to you. It's not just people trying to do injury to you, chase you down, opposing you. And it's not always just family members. I mean, this is a pretty intense situation. I mean, your own son hunting you down. Um, I I mean, it's just David loved his son, but his son definitely didn't love him. Wasn't reciprocated. He had his own interests. And so with the intensity of this, he wants to take a step back and he says, but you, Lord, let me remind us, myself, before you, I want to confess before you that our history, and this is so important. Um, We don't do this enough in our praying especially in our praying during times of great difficulty. When you go into the Old Testament and start reading some of the great prayers during times of difficulty, you go to Moses, and he sits there, and what does he do? He says, well, this is what you've done so far, God. You know, you brought us out of Egypt. You brought us to this place. Are you, what are you going to do with us here? We're yours. We're, we, we obeyed. We're out here. What are you going to do? And God says, well, just hit the rock and I'll just give you water there. Okay, But it's that reminding, it's that rehearsing. It is that statement before God that we, we have a history, we have a basis, a covenant. We have a relationship that is the basis of me calling to you. I'm not just here to complain. I am remembering before you that there is a basis for me coming to you and that is because you are my God and we are your people. And that is the basis of our request. And so I'm pouring out my cares for you. And and do you remember the rest of that verse? Cast all your cares on Him. For He cares for you. And we don't remember that phrase well enough. We are talking to a God who loves us, who sent His Son to die for us. We are giving Him our troubles and our hurts and our and, and our miseries, we are pouring them out before Him, and but we need to remember as we're doing that, Lord, You are such a good God. You have already done so much for us. Doesn't mean I'm not allowed to ask for more, but that is the basis of Your prayer, is the goodness of God. It is His strength His shield, His protection, His provision, it is all there. And so we need to take that time to remind ourselves in the midst of of horrible circumstances that God is not just at our disposal, but that He has been and will always continue to hold up His end. We trust in You, for You are the living God. And so David rehearses that before him. And once he has done that, we have another rest. Take a deep breath. 
here's my problems. Here's my relationship with you. And now I can truly rest. Even in the midst of troublesome times, I can lay down and sleep. Now, not all the Psalms are going to record this. Some of them are going to talk about the fact that he can't sleep. Guess what kind of Psalms those are? Confessionary ones. Because it's our sin that usually causes us to lose sleep. And the sin that I think causes me to lose more sleep than anything is worry um, of not trusting in God enough and trusting and trying to do it all in my head or in my imagination of how it might pan out. For David, once he reminds and rehearses who God is and what their history is about, it says, I lay down and slept. And this isn't true just on this occasion, but it was true in the past that he could trust God and he could rest. In this setting, uh, this is a text that is often connected to a New Testament event, and that is where Jesus is sleeping on the boat in a storm. Do you remember that event? Uh, that is often connected to this text a little bit uh, in some of the old preachers, if you read some of the old sermons, of the fact that um, the storm rages around us. But if we are secure in our knowledge of who we are in Christ, who we are in God, that we have His purposes to fulfill in our life, that the storm doesn't disrupt our sleep. <laughs> that is, the world can do me no injury as long as God has reason for me to be here to minister. Of whom shall I be afraid? And this is caught up in a lot of passages that says, if God before us, who can be against us? That we have, whether we have thrones and principalities, powers, things present, things to come, uh, not any of these, none of these things can shift us. There should be a calmness. And really this is pointing to the idea of being at peace with God. And if I'm at peace with God and remind myself, rehearse who He is, what He has done for us, and who I am to Him, I should be able to endure without anxiety. Am I pouring this out to God? Yes, I'm casting my care on Him, for He cares for me. And if I've cast it away from me, why do we then lay down in our bed and cuddle up to it and embrace it again? Let it alone. By rehearsing again and again who God is and what He has done for us and that He is the trustworthy one. He is the one with the power. And let us glorify Him. And it says, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. That peace that allows someone being hunted for their life to lay down and sleep. The night that David was escaping Jerusalem for his life and the argument was going on in the court of Absalom whether to pursue him or not pursue him and that decision was made. Um, David had gone a ways off into the wilderness um, and 
uh, message was sent to him, what the decision was, but that Absalom is coming after you, but he's not coming after you tonight. And I kind of wonder if... So take this night to run. If David was asleep when the message came. I like to project things. I have no reason to do this. But to project this verse in that situation, that having been cursed, having his life threatened, he's, he's taken his, his loyal followers out into the wilderness, and, and rather than sitting there and pacing around, um, that he almost just trusted in the Lord, you're my shield, I'm going to lay down and take a rest. And then in comes this message, we need to move. We don't have much time, they're going to come after you, but David is sustained. God has sustained him. Whether it was that very night, or whether it was a later night, when they, the night that they crossed the Jordan River, that they got up and did that. Um, whatever occasion that was, that uh, David was at such peace with the circumstances that he could lay down, sleep, and be sustained by God, be refreshed when he woke back up, was wakened. And when he woke up, it says, I will not be afraid. Doesn't matter how many are against me. What a change. Do you see it? He cast his care. So many are after me. They are multiplying. And it's like, oh, I can't. I, I mean, one after another after another are showing themselves disloyal to him and, and, and attaching themselves to his enemy. And he gives this off in, in Psalm and he pours it out before the Lord. And then he stops and says, the Lord's my shield. He's the one that lifted me up. I can trust in him. He made me king. David didn't become king by rebellion. He didn't become king in that fashion. God lifted him up. God anointed him through Samuel. God protected him from Saul. And God lifted him up even in the turmoil of, of some of Israel not accepting him and, and wanting some other Benjaminite, a relative of Saul. And so we have all that God, David says, I trusted in you. Why am I not trusting you now? And then he rests. And when he awakes, there's no fear. Has the circumstances been resolved um, at, at this point of this writing? No. The circumstance hadn't been really resolved. But he had a restfulness in his resolve to trust in the Lord and to remind himself and to rehearse it before God of the basis of everything that has been good in his life is from the hand of God. And now that I've rehearsed who God is and what he has done, and I've gotten some rest, now I have no fear. Not even a fear of death? No, of course not. If God is done with you, What's going to happen? Well, I'm going to go into his presence. The Old Testament term is, I'm going to rest with my fathers. And the worst Absalom can do to David is kill him. That's the worst. And the question is, would God allow that? Would he allow the kingdom to be taken over by rebellion instead of in a proper fashion? 
truly David said, maybe God called that man to curse me and so we can't disobey. Maybe my time is done and I'm okay with that. I'm not afraid. The Lord will protect me. He'll protect his people. He will do his part in the covenant relationship that we have and I can rest and I have no fear. And we would expect that at the end of verse 6, there should be another instruction to rest, to pause. But there isn't. Isn't that odd? There isn't. We abruptly, once we have no fear, we abruptly go to their request, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people, and then there is rest. We might think, well, if, I'm, if I've resolved myself and I'm no longer at fear, I'm at peace, and, and, I'm, and you almost see this relaxed state, I've had some rest, the Lord has sustained me, that now there's no request. Oh, yes, there is. But the request isn't out of a state of fear and anxiety. The request is now out of a confidence in God. The circumstances are still bad surrounding David. And once he has reached this condition, this state, I'm convinced there's a reason. It's not a, a, a scribal error that we don't have the word pause here. Because as soon as we get into this state of understanding God's provision and power and person sufficiently that we are able to rest and be at peace, that we're able to remove our fear, now we can come to God with a genuine, powerful request without delay. Now I can come to God and say, Lord, I'm not asking you to do this because of my fear. I'm not asking you to do this because of my anxiety. I'm not asking you to do this because of my sorrow. I'm not asking you to do this because of my out-of-control feelings. When I had those, I had to stop and think about, well, who is God and what's He done? Well, now I've done that and I'm at peace, but there's still a problem. <laughs> and so I'm now coming to you, not as one out of their mind, but one who has applied the truth that I know about God to the circumstances I see around me, and I ask you now, Lord, without hesitation, without even a need to pause, without fear, to say, rise up, O God, and deliver me. Save me. You have struck my enemies in the past. You've broken the teeth of the ungodly before. Salvation is yours. Belongs to you to share with us and your blessings are, is upon your people. He's going to call God to intervene in the circumstances, and that's ultimately what our prayer objective is. Please, God, intervene. But I want you to notice the first place God needs to intervene is in your heart, in your mind, in your life. Let Him intervene there first. Take the time as you are ready to cry out, O oh God, to remind yourself who He is, what He has done, what your relationship with Him is like, and let that lay hold of you first. 
Once that is secure, once that is set right, once those anxieties are, are, are relieved, because now, oh wait, I should, I shouldn't be worrying about these things. I'd be trusting in the Lord. Um, with all my heart, I should not be leading in my own understanding. I should be acknowledging Him in all my ways, and He will direct my path. I think I quoted that last week too, didn't I? Because I do it every day almost. And so we come to this, and as we encounter these things, we let it realize that first, my worry, my anxiety, my misery, my fear, my sorrow, uh, can easily lead into despair, which is sin. It can easily get too far. And so first, Lord, you need to war work on me. And now that my attitude and my affections are now under control by the truth of who you are, now I can come to you with great confidence and very directly and say, Oh, Lord, intervene. You've done it before. You can do it now. Our only hope is you. Salvation is of the Lord. These are your people. You have raised my head up. You have lifted me up and exalted me to be king over your people, Israel. They aren't my people. Do you know what Absalom's going to do to them? If he's willing to do that to his father, what will he do to their, his people? What kind of king would he be? Well, we already kind of know. Absalom only cared about Absalom. He had no children. So you know what he did? Because he had no children to carry on his name. He built himself a giant altar and called that altar Absalom. Because he had no children. So he wanted to build this great edifice. And that's, that's my that's my. Testimony, that's my heritage. I'm going to name it Absalom. What kind of man is that going to be? Is that going to be a blessing to your people, God? Is that who you want ruling over to take my place? And so intervene, O Lord. My salvation is totally dependent upon you. The blessing of your people Israel, totally dependent upon you. You need to intervene. And so we implore you, our request is not driven by our anxiety. Our anxiety or our circumstances might have initiated the process. We rehearse it before God. Out loud. Let yourself hear yourself. Say it to God. And then reflect before God out loud. Let yourself hear yourself say who God is and what He has done and His great wonders. And then rest upon that, that confidence that God is involved in humanity and is, and is wanting what is good for His people, that He works all things together for our good, the Bible says. Of those who love Him are called according to purposes. Lord, we are of that ilk. So now intervene. Not just to remove my fear, because my fear is already gone, but to deal with the circumstances that are really around me. Not just to make me feel better, but because you're the only one that can save. 
You have done it in the past because my enemies are yours and yours are mine. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. These people aren't doing things right. They aren't doing it well. They aren't glorifying your name. They aren't exalting you. This isn't your will. I am really tired of people telling me that everything is God's will. Oh, it's God's will. It's like, no, that's... God doesn't want evil things being done, perpetrated against other people, whether they be on an individual basis, a family, a church, a nation, internationally. It is not his desire. And so we find that God wants good. He, he is his salvation. These are the ungodly. And Lord, you need to deal with that. We can only be saved by you. And these are your people, Lord. Do you really... Can they really be blessed under Absalom? Not really. In fact, the Bible tells us that when the righteous reign, the people rejoice. But when the <laughs> wicked reign, the people are, are moan, they groan. I hear a lot of groaning these days. Well, what's the resolution? Am I just trying to get rid of my groaning? Or am I trying to resolve, asking God to resolve things for a much higher reason? Not just because I feel unsafe that David is praying this. It might have been how he started, but once he remembered and considered and rehearsed who God is, he can rest in the confidence of who God is and now implore God for a very, with a very different motive. The motive now is, Lord, only you can save. These are the ungodly people. You need to judge that. And these are your people. Are you really going to bring this season of misery upon them? You have to be the one to bless your people. Lord, you care for them. And we will rest. We will pause. We will think on that. The Lord is our deliverer. This is a great introductory. I say, well, why? This is really late in David's life. Why is it so early in the Psalms? And I believe it was placed early as a great example of this type of psalm uh, because of its formula layout. We're not always going to follow this exact formula. Uh, sometimes one or two of these steps might be missing or uh, might be rearranged, but this formulary psalm is exceptional to teach us how to come to God with all those pains, all those injuries, all those fears, anxieties, all those hurts, and to seek his salvation. Not just to get rid of all the pain, misery, and hurts, but to truly bring glory to his name and blessings to his people. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your great love for us. And that you are a God that is not far off and disinterested, but that you are near at hand and that you are desiring to work on in, in our lives, in our midst. And Lord, whether by life or by death, that we might serve you faithfully, knowing that you are faithful, that you will keep your promises. And Lord, our desire is to serve you 
unto your coming. And Lord, we know that, that will bring us up against much opposition, but we thank you for the truths of your word that no matter how many there are that oppose you and oppose your people, that we can rest, that you are our shield, that we can be fearless, engaging the world, trusting in you. Lord, you are our salvation, not only from our sin, but from our circumstances around us. We look forward to your coming. We pray that it might be soon. You might deliver your creation and your creatures and your people from this wicked, wicked world who's perverting all of these, doing injury and violence against them. Lord, we want to serve you until you're coming. To engage this world with your gospel, that some might receive you as Savior and Lord. Lord, we thank you for your Spirit's presence within us to enable us to know your word, to convict us where we have not been attentive to your word in our lives, to seal our inheritance, to empower us for ministry. Lord, we pray that as we encounter difficult times, that we might pattern ourselves by this psalm, that we might glorify your name and see your hand bring salvation and blessing to your people. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.